Chapter seventy eight Middlemarch This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Middlemarch by George Eliot. Chapter seventy eight Would it were yesterday, and I in the grave with her sweet faith above for monument. Rosamond and Will stood motionless, they did not know how long, he looking towards the spot where Dorothea had stood, and she looking towards him with doubt. It seemed an endless time to Rosamond, in whose inmost soul there was hardly so much annoyance as gratification from what had just happened. Shallow natures dream of an easy sway over the emotions of others, trusting implicitly in their own petty magic to turn the deepest streams, and confident, by pretty gestures and remarks, of making the thing that is not as though it were. She knew that Will had received a severe blow, but she had been little used to imagining other people's states of mind except as a material cut into shape by her own wishes, and she believed in her own power to soothe or subdue. Even Tertius, that most perverse of men, was always subdued in the long run, Events had been obstinate, but still Rosamond would have said now, as she did before her marriage, that she never gave up what she had set her mind on. She put out her arm, and laid the tips of her fingers on Will's coat-sleeve. "'Don't touch me!' he said, with an utterance like the cut of a lash darting from her, and changing from pink to white and back again, as if his whole frame were tingling with the pain of the sting. He wheeled around to the other side of the room, and stood opposite to her, with the tips of his fingers in his pockets, and his head thrown back, looking fiercely, not at Rosamond, but at a point a few inches away from her. She was keenly offended, but the signs she made of this were such as only Lydgate was used to interpret. She became suddenly quiet, and seated herself, untying her hanging bonnet, and laying it down with her shawl. Her little hands, which she folded before her, were very cold. It would have been safer— for Will, in the first instance, to have taken up his hat and gone away. But he had felt no impulse to do this. On the contrary, he had a horrible inclination to stay and shatter Rosamond with his anger. It seemed as impossible to bear the fatality she had drawn down on him without venting his fury, as it would be to a panther, to bear the javelin wound without springing and biting. And yet how could he tell a woman that he was ready to curse her? He was fuming under a repressive law which he was forced to acknowledge. He was dangerously poised, and Rosamond's voice now brought the decisive vibration. In flute-like tones of sarcasm, she said, "'You can easily go after Mrs. Casabon and explain your preference.' "'Go after her!' he burst out with a sharp edge in his voice. "'Do you think she would turn and look at me, or value any word I uttered to her again at more than a dirty feather?' "'Explain! How can a man explain at the expense of a woman?' "'You can tell her what you please,' said Rosamond, with more tremor. "'Do you suppose she would like me better for sacrificing you? She is not a woman to be flattered because I made myself despicable, to believe that I must be true to her because I was a dastard to you.' He began to move about with the restlessness of a wild animal that sees prey but cannot reach it. Presently he burst out again. "'I had no hope before—not much—of anything better to come.' But I had one certainty, that she believed in me. Whatever people had said or done about me, she believed in me. That's gone. She'll never again think me anything but a paltry pretense, too nice to take heaven except upon flattering conditions, and yet selling myself for any devil's change of by the sly. She'll think of me as an incarnate insult to her from the first moment we— 
Will stopped, as if he had found himself grasping something that must not be thrown and shattered. He found another vent for his rage by snatching up Rosamond's words again, as if they were reptiles to be throttled and flung off. Explain! Tell a man to explain how he dropped into hell! Explain my preference! I never had a preference for her, any more than I have a preference for breathing. No other woman exists by the side of her. I would rather touch her hand, if it were dead, than I would touch any other woman's living. Rosamond, while these poisoned weapons were being hurled at her, was almost losing the sense of her identity, and seemed to be waking into some new terrible existence. She had no sense of chill, resolute repulsion, of reticent self-justification, such as she had known under Lydgate's most stormy displeasure. All her sensibility was turned into a bewildering novelty of pain. She felt a new, terrified recoil under a lash never experienced before. What another nature felt in opposition to her own was being burnt and bitten into her consciousness. When Will had ceased to speak, she had become an image of sickened misery. Her lips were pale, and her eyes had a tearless dismay in them. If it had been Tertius who stood opposite to her, that look of misery would have been a pang to him, and he would have sunk by her side to comfort her with that strong-armed comfort which she had often held very cheap. Let it be forgiven to Will that he had no such movement of pity. He had felt no bond beforehand to this woman who had spoiled the ideal treasure of his life, and he held himself blameless. He knew that he was cruel, but he had no relenting in him yet. After he had done speaking, he still moved about, half in absence of mind, and Rosamond sat perfectly still. At length, Will, seeming to bethink himself, took up his hat, yet stood some moments irresolute. He had spoken to her in a way that made a phrase of common politeness difficult to utter, and yet, now that he had come to the point of going away from her without further speech, he shrank from it as a brutality. He felt checked and stultified in his anger. He walked towards the mantelpiece, and leaned his arm on it, and waited in silence for—he hardly knew what. The vindictive fire was still burning in him, and he could utter no word of retraction. But it was, nevertheless, in his mind, that, having come back to this hearth where he had enjoyed a caressing friendship, he had found calamity seated there. He had suddenly revealed to him a trouble that lay outside the home as well as within it, and what seemed a foreboding was pressing upon him as with slow pincers— that his life might come to be enslaved by this helpless woman who had thrown herself upon him in the dreary sadness of her heart. But he was in gloomy rebellion against the fact that his quick apprehensiveness foreshadowed to him, and when his eyes fell on Rosamond's blighted face it seemed to him that he was the more pitiable of the two, for pain must enter into its glorified life of memory before it can turn into compassion. And so they remained for many minutes, opposite each other, far apart, in silence. Will's face still possessed by a mute rage, and Rosamond's by a mute misery. The poor thing had no force to fling out any passion in return. The terrible collapse of the illusion towards which all her hope had been strained was a stroke which had too thoroughly shaken her. Her little world was in ruins, and she felt herself tottering in the midst, as a lonely, bewildered consciousness. Will wished that she would speak, and bring some mitigating shadow across his own cruel speech— which seemed to stand staring at them, both in mockery of any attempt at revived fellowship. But she said nothing, and at last, with a desperate effort over himself, he asked, "'Shall I come in and see Lydgate this evening?' "'If you like,' Rosamond answered, just audibly. And then Will went out of the house, Martha never knowing that he had been in. After he was gone, Rosamond tried to get up from her seat, 
but fell back, fainting. When she came to herself again, she felt too ill to make the exertion of rising to ring the bell, and she remained helpless until the girl, surprised at her long absence, thought, for the first time, of looking for her in all the downstairs rooms. Rosamond said that she had felt suddenly sick and faint, and wanted to be helped upstairs. When there, she threw herself on the bed, with her clothes on, and lay in apparent torpor, as she had done once before on a memorable day of grief. Lydgate came home earlier than he had expected, about half-past five, and found her there. The perception that she was ill threw every other thought into the background. When he felt her pulse, her eyes rested on him with more persistence than they had done for a long while, as if she felt some content that he was there. He perceived the difference in a moment, and seating himself by her, put his arm gently under her, and bending over her said, "'My poor Rosamond, has something agitated you?' Clinging to him, she fell into hysterical sobbings and cries, and for the next hour he did nothing but soothe and tend her. He imagined that Dorothea had been to see her, and that all this effect on her nervous system, which evidently involved some new turning towards himself, was due to the excitement of the new impressions which that visit had raised. End of chapter 78 Read for LibriVox by Madame Tusk www.rlowalrus.com dot sitesled dot com